because we had spent time together on social network and, you know, as you know, shot the last shot of the movie together, uh, uh, it was a very casual, easy conversation. He called me last year before Christmas and said, uh, you know, we talked we, a few things about what our careers have been doing. And then he said, uh, I'm going to do this movie called Being the Ricardos, and it would make my Christmas if you said yes. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Red Carpet Rookies. My name is Mike Battle, a film production junior working for studios in London. Each episode, I bring you advice and stories from film, TV, and content professionals to help demystify and democratize the industries for juniors and fans alike. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Today's guest was described by a previous Red Carpet Rookies alumni as a master of cinematography, and she's certainly right about that. Born into the film business, he grafted his way through the rungs of the camera department and music video scene of the 1990s, and after shooting videos for the likes of George Michael and Janet Jackson, got the call from David Fincher to take the reins of Fight Club. From there, it's been a run of legendary movies, including One Hour Photo and Gone Girl, as well as The Social Network and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, both of which he picked up Oscar nominations for. Our guest is, of course, Mr. Jeff Cronenworth. How are you doing today? Excellent. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's wonderful to have you, Jeff. Now, I ask each one of my guests the same first question, and yours is slightly different because I feel some of our audience might know a little bit about your family already. But what did your parents, plural, do, and did it affect your career choices moving forward? Yeah, of course. Uh, My dad was a cinematographer. He photographed uh, movies such as Blade Runner, Altered States, Peggy Sue Got Married, uh, State of Grace, uh, and he was quite uh, quite revered in in the industry for being a cinematographer. Cinematographer, you know, people still look up to and copy or replicate Blade Runner. Uh, he always was pushing boundaries and uh, technologies and utilized light and contrast and in magical ways, and was a great storyteller and. Uh, My mother, I mean, she eventually was a real estate agent, but wanted to be an actress when she was younger. And uh, I think that's how they met. So, yeah. You obviously got a start quite early in the business, working in the camera department and such. Sure. And I know you wanted to be the hardest worker in the room, almost to try and get away from your name to some extent. Did you feel that the crew ever treated you differently? And did you ever have any negative stuff to work through in that regard? It's a funny thing because uh, obviously uh, doors open for you, but uh, they also come with judgment. And uh, and for me, I took it more of a, of a burden. I wanted to be invisible. I wanted to be the hardest working person on the set. I didn't want to feel entitled or anybody to, you know, feel that way or mis- misinterpret uh, my intentions and stuff. And so... Uh, I, I did everything I could to support uh, my dad, but I also uh, worked extremely hard at at uh, uh, doing my job as well as I could and and also integrating with uh, all the other crew members and whatnot. Um, no, it was never really an issue when we were working together, although uh, I think on other sets for other people, people would question or test or want to really figure out, you know, uh, it was, was this like just a, a silver spoon or is this guy have some integrity to it? And I think that's fair. I think they had a right to want to know. Um, but it, uh, I, I, you know, the best compliment was I was on several projects 
where people didn't know we were related. <laughs> so that was a, I felt like that was a fe- feather in my cap. Yeah. So you got a few stripes on your back in the camera department and then headed off to USC film school. You've mentioned that part of the reason to go back when you went was because accessing films was actually quite difficult. And it's not the same as it is now with streaming and all that kind of thing. How do you feel about people trying to get into the business now? Do you still feel that film school is something they really have to do or things have changed so much? It's not quite what it was before. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it depends on the individual person, you know, for me, uh, college, uh, obviously, you know, we had no internet, we had no DVDs, we had no, uh, streaming services. So if you wanted to watch a classic movie, you had to go to uh, either a film school where you studied film and and they had those uh, they had those films in the library, or you would wait till like a midnight screening at an offbeat theater somewhere in the middle of downtown that would screen classic movies. But so there was no there was no research or no ability to do it without without an institution, uh, and also you know, movie making uh, with film is expensive and complicated. And so USC, one of the great things that they did uh, in their film school was practical application. You had to make a lot of films. You shot films and cut films and had to go out and beg and borrow and steal and tell your stories. And that's kind of like the same foundation that everybody that's a filmmaker should have nowadays. Um I don't know that you you would go for the same reasons, but for me, I I grew up a lot in those two years. I needed to have a little space to mature and and appreciate the industry. Uh, I don't know that that's for everybody anymore. Uh, with 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 the software that comes with an iPhone, you can shoot your own movies in 4K and cut them together and you can analyze every film that's ever been made and you can listen to people talk about them and dissect those films and and particular shots, how they were accomplished and why they were accomplished uh, the way they were. So I I, I don't know if you would get the same things out of it that I took away from it, but I still think that it's an individual choice. Like uh, you still have to make films. Uh, It's still uh, when you get to a certain level, uh, the tools and resources, uh, the campus is going to have a lot of stuff. And, you know, I, I don't know, uh, how other film schools uh, haven't kept track of other film schools, but I know USC has an enormous um, CGI department that's like a, that, that is mixed with uh, with military war games and and trying to create that, but that crosses over into video games and then CG work for visual effects. And uh, and I know they have all the cameras and they have uh, all the editorial bays and sound stages. And so I still think that uh, there is benefits to going there and doing it as a collaboration and learning and studying and and making films where you don't have as much pressure as you might if you jump into a professional world where the expectations are going to be a lot higher. That said, I mean, you have to you have to do it yourself. So whether you're doing it at a school or you're doing it on your own, or whether you're using your iPhone to make movies and cut them together yourself, you still the 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 thing that's going to be the most educational for you is is making mistakes or discovering solutions or solving problems yourself. Yours was a slightly odd experience, I guess, because you were already in the union and working a bit when you went there, weren't you? Yeah, it's kind of it's it, it was very difficult time in Hollywood to get into the union. And so uh, I had started uh, at a junior college with the idea of getting 
uh, into USC for, for the film school. And my father had an opportunity for me that came along where I could work either as a loader on Blade Runner or as a staff loader at a commercial company. And in the end, he felt like the commercial company was the guarantee where a Blade Runner, that position might not be there. And so that's what I did. <laughs> you know, of course, I would have loved to have been on Blade Runner, but quite honestly, I was 19 years old and it was a very difficult film under extreme conditions, lots of nights, lots of rain, very cold in the back lots and a lot of pressure. You know, it was Ridley's first movie in, in the States and there was a, it was the only big movie going on at the time. I think there was a writer's strike. And so there was a lot of, a, it would have been a tough thing for a 19 year old to navigate through. So I, I don't, I don't, uh, I, I really was lucky that I, I did what I did. And, and in the end it was like, uh, I was prepping cameras for commercials. I was prepping five cameras a day for different, five different jobs, learning all the equipment, all the rental houses, all the nuances and meeting, you know, a different DP on each one of those and building up like friendships and understandings of how people work and everybody brings something different to it. So, uh, yeah, it was a really good education for me. And so I went, I did that, got in the union, worked for about two years as an assistant, and then went back to USC and, uh, you know, applied, got into the film school and then graduated from school and then started working right away in the industry. We've mentioned making your first films and getting out into the industry there. One of the places that you first flourished was in the 90s music video scene, which is obviously huge with MTV. Things have changed in that realm quite a lot with music videos now. They're obviously still very experimental and there's more choice than a feature film to some extent. But from what I can see, they're quite sort of blockbustery now and there's not as many of them. How would you advise a young filmmaker or DP trying to get in now on whether they should get into music videos at all? Right. Yeah. Um, it is different. I mean, uh, I still think it's a great medium. I loved it. I did, you know, three or 400 music videos in, in my day. So, and I still do one or two a year. Uh, they just, they happen to be, you know, I'm fortunate enough that they're, you know, Katy Perry and Taylor Swift and Maroon 5 and they happen to be bands with money. Um, you know, Napster kind of killed the music industry for a few years. And in doing so, it took away all the big music videos that we were also lucky to be part of. But they've figured out how to monetize the music and they figured out that, you know, people buy the music videos and download the music videos now. So it will never be what it was in the heyday, but people are discovering that they can make money and sell more albums by doing videos. And with any luck, you know, that'll still be a very creative uh, medium to get into. You you still have a responsibility to deliver something, you know? Uh, and of course there's been a history of such brilliant work that you, the bar is pretty high, but that said, you know, there's so many varying degrees, you know, uh, the budgets go from something like uh, a Taylor Swift video, which has a decent budget to no money at all anymore. They feel like it's a privilege for you to be able to shoot for them to do the songs. But I still think people should do it. It's a great way of learning. It's a great, you know, it's a medium sized story, right? It's a four minute or five minute story and not a 30 second story and not a two hour or hour and a half story. So uh, I would encourage anybody that gets an opportunity to shoot them uh, to do it because there's no rules and you can, uh, you know, you can continuity wise, which is something that's very important when you're telling stories uh, is something that you can learn through music videos because they don't have to be there. There isn't, 
you know, they can, there's no rhyme or reason necessarily. It depends on the video that you're trying to shoot, of course, but, but uh, they can, they can be anything. So I think it's a good place to get your feet wet. Definitely. And there's nothing to say that you can't keep it tight. For example, I was watching the Maroon 5 Memories video that you did. And a lot of the elements of it are something you could hope to emulate in a lower budget. You know, it was one shot, close on the face. Didn't seem like there's that much lighting, but obviously I don't know. Yeah, but you you want to know that that was a a day of pre-light. There was about 80 lights on a circular (laughs) rig above him. I take it back. Uh, that, that, that took two days to program to the music. Uh, and the director was doing a, sh- a film in London. So everything was done through video and Skype. And, uh, it was a interesting, interesting shoot. And it changed quite a bit. It was going to be a lot more dramatic. Like the colors were going to change the, the height of the lights, depending like heaven and hell and all these kind of different ideas. And then it ended up being very simple, which I think, serve the song really well because it's quite a beautiful song yeah no i, I loved it um moving on to your features obviously fight club um you know it's yeah. a big one in your history when you sure. got the gig you've mentioned that you danced all the way to the car which is a lovely vi- little visual of you jeff um, yeah. when the excitement settled did you also feel you know nervousness about taking on your first fincher show as the main unit dp yeah i mean i i I suffered through that entire shoot unnecessarily. You know, David was enormously supportive, as was uh, all the production and and the studio. But uh, I put the weight on myself. I should have had more fun doing it. Um, But I just didn't want to disappoint or let him down. I have so much respect for him as a filmmaker and as a person. Uh, I wanted to, you know, not be the one that stumbles. Uh, So I, I, and, and maybe that was necessary for me on the first one to, to kind of feel that way. You know, um, I've always looked at, at fear as something wonderful. If you are able to utilize it in a way that keeps you aware and fresh and on point and, you know, not getting into traps and taking risk, if it's debilitating to you, then that's a problem. But if you embrace it, it can keep you, you know, it can really help you. And so I used that during that movie, uh, to, to, to just to keep me focused and, and um, you know, pushing boundaries and taking risk and stuff. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was a little bit overwhelming for sure. Did you ever have a conversation or did he have one with you, David, about what he saw in you and why he took you from being, you know, second unit up to his, his main guy and then build the collaboration? Have you ever had that chat? Not, I don't know that it's ever been that exact. You know, we've, we've certainly paid compliments to one another or discussed what attributes or been in Q and A's and things where things are said back and forth to support one another. But, uh, no, it's it's still a mystery to me. (laughs) (laughs) I like hearing about when directors and, um, cinematographers and and people can almost sort of feel with a film, what's going to happen with it. Would you be able to talk a little bit about the conversation you had where you were talking about fight club was going to define the nineties? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, it was prior, it was my first meeting with David about that, about fight club. Uh, and I actually thought I was going to meet him to talk about second units. I'd shot second unit on seven in the game. And, uh, he was describing, you know, what the script was prior to me reading it and what it would meant. And his goal was to represent the nineties 
and have it be iconic in the sense like Blade Runner is the movie of the eighties. And so he was going for something like that. Uh, although he, he was very aware that, uh, it may not make money if it's misunderstood. Uh, in the end, you know, after all the time and effort that he and everybody put into it, but mostly his continued, you know, following through for the whole thing for two years of his life, it would, it, 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 of course you want it to be, to make money because we're all judged by box office, regardless of whether, uh, right or wrong, you know, that didn't happen. And then, then fight club, when it was first released was not a, a financial success. It only came a couple of years later, or even later that year when the DVD was released, that it became, you know, a monster hit, number one DVD, and then uh, eventually, you know, a cultural kind of iconic movie that's even in the National Registry. It's like it's an archived in D.C. along with Blade Runner. So it's kind of fun. So uh, my dad has one and I have one in there. That's very cool. So as a segue, uh, if Fight Club defined the 90s, you know, uh, social media has kind of defined the 2000s. Yeah. So this is social network, of course. A dialogue-heavy script, a dialogue-driven script, I don't think anyone would deny that. When you saw that, how did you approach finding space for your own artistry within mm -hmm. what was obviously a Sorkin moment to some extent? You, you know, you've got to find your own creative space in there, haven't you? Yeah, it's a funny thing because uh, uh, I can we can get more into it if, we, if you bring up Being the Ricardos, which is the last film that I, I just did, which was also written by Aaron Sorkin and directed by him. But he... You know, uh, first off, uh, when Fincher called me and said he's doing a movie about Facebook, I was I couldn't imagine what that would be or why. Why are we going to be doing this this movie? Right. Uh, but once I read the script, it was uh, very clear why he was interested in it and and uh, and the personalities and, and the kind of the human interaction or deception or, uh, you know, leaving it up to us in the end, ultimately to arbitrate who's wrong and right, or if anybody is, and if it's just a combination of all of the above. So I, I really loved it and the, the opportunity to do it. And then the way that Aaron writes and the pace of the dialogue and the fact that it overlaps each other and the words that they say are so clever that it's, it's always really fun to, to shoot his scenes. You know, you just have to figure out at where, where in that, that you support the story and how much creative freedom can you take visually to support that story and what, the, what, you know, what those, what those choices would be as far as camera movement and lens choices and any kind of other effects and, and push as much as you can. And so with, with Fincher directing, that's never an issue because he's, he's very like comes from Hitchcock school in, uh, in the sense of prepping a movie, doing, doing most of the work and the prep. So it's not really, a, there's, there's a lot less, less left to guess on, on set uh, because we've tried to eliminate any of the uh, setbacks or problems that may occur. That doesn't stop us from discovering better ideas or creative solutions to things that are going on, but you certainly like lessen the things that are going to surprise you. You mentioned being the Ricardos there. Yeah. And one of the things I did want to ask about is when a cinematographer like yourself first meets a director, how do those first meetings play out? Because I know you guys did meet at the end of the social network, but you know, it's your first time working together. What, what does that look like? Everyone's different. Every, you know, just like we're all different people. Every time you meet a director is different. And what that director 
his expectations of you are and what he brings to the party. And then that combination of you find out and discover what you can contribute and, 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 uh, and how you guys are going to, you know, collaborate together. And uh, because we had spent time together on social network and, you know, as you know, shot the last shot of the movie together, uh, uh, it was a very casual, easy conversation. He called me last year before Christmas and said, uh, you know, we talked we, a few things about what our careers have been doing. And then he said, uh, I'm going to do this movie called Being the Ricardos and it would make my Christmas if you said yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he he wanted to he just wanted to push himself. He wanted to evolve as a filmmaker. And um, he had done Chicago Seven and Faden did a beautiful job, uh, got a nomination last year for that movie. Uh, but that that movie, it, 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 half the movie takes place in a courtroom. And, you know, that's just that's so difficult. They did a, an amazing job. This one was out and about more. And this is uh, uh, a lot more uh, people, you know, emotional reactions between couples and whatnot. So we, he wanted to he wanted me to to bring some of what Fincher brings visually in our movies and our collaborations together uh, to this movie. And so he kind of opened the door. He said, and, and, and you know, uh, I say when he when you read one of his scripts, they're they're pretty complete. You you get a whole story. Um, there's nothing that you have to make up for. There's nothing that you have to cover. There's there's it's all there. So in a way, and this sounds peculiar, but it, it frees you up. It really does, because now you can take chances and risks because the structure is so strong that then you can push the visuals and and and, and uh, figure out a language that's going to embrace all that story and those words and allow the actors to move and talk and, uh, uh, you know, have rooms to uh, to perform and, and, and create drama within it that's that support the, the narrative. And so I found it unbelievably uh, creative experience and, uh, and an incredible collaboration. Advice for directors kind of newer to the craft, you know, let's talk about younger ones perhaps, is often to lean on a more experienced DP if you're doing shorts or your first feature or something. Was that the case with Sorkin? Because obviously he's incredibly successful, but he is comparatively less experienced than yourself on set. How did that relationship work? It was great. You know, uh, I have all the respect and admiration in the world for him. Uh, he's been on sets forever, you know. He he may not be in the director's role, but he was a showrunner on West Wing and showrunner on Newsroom, and uh, uh, and so many different movies. So um, he's very upfront about what he's comfortable with and what he's not comfortable with, and always looking for better ideas and you know get him out of his comfort zone. He's very funny. He's he's uh, talks about you know if it was up to him, he would be comfortable with two people sitting at a table and they just deliver all the entire script. And and <laughs> that's a Broadway play in a way. And uh, <laughs> he has the number one play on Broadway right now as we speak. So um, there's truth to that. But he wanted he wanted the he wanted more cinema. He wanted more. Uh, he wanted to evolve his his visual storytelling. And so that was an opportunity for me just to kind of push him out of his comfort zones and open his eyes to certain things. And and we we did. And sometimes he agreed. And sometimes he had. A different position and then you know we we worked it all out but it was really like a fun collaboration you know and it, and it wasn't just me it was like <clears throat> the entire team realized how good the script was 
what a nostalgic story it is that we all have like a piece of us is, 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 is have seen and in love with, uh, I love Lucy and the whole story of them. And so, uh, there was this energy on set that was very exciting and everybody, uh, brought so much integrity to it, you know, uh, costumes and production design and uh my work and uh, even you know uh editorial uh at all the dailies and and watching the di and different things like everybody was still so invested uh because it, was, it felt special i can tell you loved it which is which is really cool does it <laughs> does it help the storytelling i presume it does to have the writer director there you know particularly someone of his league. <laughs> it does. It, it does. But, um, you know, it depends on, on that person. Uh, I've shot for writer directors a often, uh, and sometimes they get stuck on seeing the performers deliver the words as opposed to, uh, creating an environment where the words might have more weight. And so that gets to be something that you need to arbitrate sometimes, you know, uh, someone in silhouette may be way stronger and the words may come off with so much uh, more effect than if you, if it's uh, something where you are actually watching him deliver that line. So that's something that you have to negotiate through. But you also always want to keep a, a, a mind about what the palette is that you're creating so that it's balanced, so that there is times when you have relief and there is times when it's dark and there is times when it's bright and there are times, you know, everything has to have a flow to it. Uh, you don't want everybody squinting for two and a half hours and then just going, I couldn't see a damn thing the whole movie. It's like, I don't know what that's, you know, and there tends to be a tendency uh, the last couple of years of people just going darker and darker and darker for, for no apparent reason, you know, it's like, why? Um, that's not hard to do. That's easy. So uh, yeah, so it, it's, a, it, it's great though, but uh, you, the benefits of it is like, no one knows the story better. Uh, they created it. And so when things come up or uh, continuity or uh, historical things, or it's really great to have the source. You mentioned going darker and darker there. And I, I would argue that a lot of people are doing that because they are emulating something that yourself and David has kind of created. <laughs> and I was trying to think of the words to yeah. describe it. How do you see it? Because, you know, the film fanboys online, it is the aesthetic. You know, that is what they're all going for. And I feel like that's probably what they're copying there. How do you see it, the man who did it? I think it depends on the story. I think you have to serve that. And if it calls for that, then do it. But if it, but if it's not, it's not a contest, you know? It's like you don't win prizes for not lighting something uh, uh, or stopping down beyond what it is. You know, I think... I think you have a responsibility as a, as a visual arbitrator of all of the story to get the audience engaged. And if dark gets them engaged, then you've served your, you've served the story, but if it doesn't, or if people could disengage or get off the ride ever, then you failed. And so I think that's a tough job that cinematographers have to, to navigate that, you know, cause it's always like, yeah, of course we always want to, be bold and and strong and you know half the movie with silhouettes would be gorgeous but you know that's not going to work out so well so because it, it compromises so many other things that that bring a story to life clothes and set and paint and all the different colors and things that that you that have detail you know one of the reasons like uh Fincher and I for some of the dramas that we shot would use um 
say a 40 for a close up as opposed to like a 75 is because in a large format uh situ frame you can put somebody on a close up not having distortion but leave enough room off to the side where you don't lose where they are you keep them in contact to the set and location because that's as much a character sometimes as they are and so i feel like if it's too dark or for unnecessarily or if it's if it's a, a, a hundred millimeter lens doing the same size, but you can't see anything behind them, then you lose perspective and you're not using all of your storytelling ability to, to keep an audience engaged, you know, because you're not making movies for each other or making them to an audience. It reminds me of that um, quote. I think it's from yourself or David about sort of strapping in for the roller coaster and then being in the whole way. Yeah. I said that because that's, yeah, it's, that's, that's his style of, that's that's kind of the mantra when we shoot uh, together or when he makes a movie is he doesn't want to have any distractions. He wants to own every part of the film, not have any mistakes in continuity, sound, wardrobe, looks, eye lines, uh, focus, anything that would allow you consciously or subconsciously to get disengaged from the story that we're trying to tell you. I feel like you guys, well, yourself in these podcasts, probably talk about your relationship together quite a lot. <laughs> One thing I'd like to ask you, as a bit of a flip on that, uh, is that, is there anything you think you've taught David? <laughs> I've probably opened his eyes to different perspectives on some things. And uh, we've, we've shared so much time together and so many good laughs and stories and solved so many problems. Um, it would be not possible to have enhanced each other's lives but he's a very very bright savvy guy so i'm definitely the benefactor of that relationship <laughs> what does a typical day of prep for you guys look like uh it depends if you're out and about scouting then those are full consuming days of going to a location you know we'll usually do it together with the production designer don burt we'll go and look before anybody else is around and we'll see if this place works and then we'll talk about how we're going to cover a scene and, and what the what, what sources we'd be using and where this is going to happen and then you go back later with the entire gang which may be up to like 30 or 40 people and go through it again uh, uh but we've already kind of blocked out how this scene's going to work it changes, obviously, when it's all dressed, when it's lit, when the talent comes in, the actors kind of want to find certain nuances that maybe you hadn't thought of, or they go to places that are different than you anticipated. Uh, so you negotiate through that and solve problems. But uh, yeah, that's that's like a typical scout day. Uh, prep days on set, I mean, on in, in the office would be going over storyboards, talking about shots. Uh, any reference material that was relevant to what we were trying to accomplish. That's, that's the good part of it. Did you use much reference on being the Ricardos because obviously it's period. How does that affect your job? Yes. Yes. And no, like uh, <clears throat> the funny thing about that is, is we talked together about what was important, what wasn't important, what we were trying to avoid and what we loved. And so when you're doing a period piece to me, uh, it's easy to fall into a parody of that period, which you don't want to do. That doesn't serve anybody. Uh, and you also, you know, you have two schools where someone thinks that you should use lenses uh, uh, and cameras of that era and shoot like like they did. But they only shot like they did because that was the state of technology at the time. If they had our lenses today, they would have used them. 
And their their audiences were watching TV for the first time in 52. You know, it was brand, it was fairly new. And, and being in people's homes was 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 new. You know, it was it wasn't a common thing. The audiences today like grew up watching Game of Thrones, you know, on phones. As it should be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I think the the maturity and sophistication of audiences are are has has evolved so much that you have to bring something more to it. So you want to pay homage to the era and stay true to it and get the audience in in that same world. But then you have to capture it in a way that an, a modern audience can relate to it. You know, you can't make a hand crank film. They're not going to understand why that's doing that. In uh, in being the Ricardos, uh, it's a movie about Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball, not not Ricky and Lucy Ricardo. I mean, they they have their moments in the and but we never actually do the TV show. We do images of the show only in in Lucy's mind when she's trying to solve comedic uh, challenges, and they flash back to how those challenges got solved while making the show. And so I used monochrome cameras to shoot that since they shot in black and white in the era. They had all kinds of issues they had to deal with. You know, they they had to, to use kinescopes and they had to use, you know, the contrast ratios. They had to have very low contrast ratios so that because all through the different channels before it got to your television at home, uh, it picked up contrast. Right. So they would like you know, they would doll down newspapers, doll down any of the whites that had some weird colors on it to make it look more saturated. I felt like I could copy that and have that kind of two to one, no contrast, flat looking, and people would go, oh, that's exactly it. But would they understand that? Like, you know, would a modern audience go, oh, it just looks like old footage? Or would they understand that we were paying tribute to that? Or I chose differently. I chose to make it a little more contemporary, stay, stay all in the same flavor, but a little more contrast, a little more highlight, a little, a little richer. And I just felt like it, it, it's fine because it's not supposed to be the show anyways. It's only in her mind. And I think you owe it to a contemporary audience. It reminds me of that quote um, that someone said once about how it's actually much harder, arguably, to do period than it is go sci-fi because it's all happened before everyone's got a memory of it you've got a memory of it the audience they all want something else from it so it's difficult to tread that line isn't it yeah it can be, can be tricky for sure now to wrap it up i do a little quick fire questionnaire jeff if you're up for it well i will try i'll try <laughs> so just say whatever comes into your head are you ready jeff cronin with i'm ready number one what is one of the best pieces of advice you've ever been given? Go with your gut feeling. Trust yourself and and uh, embrace that. It's usually the right choice. Love it. Number two, do you have a favorite film? I would be kicked out of the family if I didn't say Blade Runner, but uh, because I, I find so much of his work, I relate to it. I see him in it, and uh, it it was such such a great, almost perfect you know visual film. I would say that. And then, you know, I'm like everybody else. I love The Godfather. I love Shawshank. I love No Country for Old Men. Uh, I love the original Willy Wonka. Mm. Well, you got to work with Brando, didn't you, on that Michael Jackson video? I did. Yeah. <laughs> Number three, what gives you a reason to get out of bed every day for an early call time, if any at all? I love it. I love going to the challenges, trying to solve problems that day, 
finding beautiful images, telling a story. Uh, and I love the crew and I love, I just, it's, it's such a inspiring thing. I still get excited about it. I still think that I'm growing as a filmmaker. I still think there's a lot to learn and I learn something every day. That's wonderful. Number four, which job in the industry would you do if you weren't doing yours? Mm, that's a good one. Well, I always wanted to be an actor, but I, I just, I don't have anything. I, I don't have any ability to act. So, <laughs> so it, it kind of that, you know, I decided early on that those days are going to not, it's not going to work out for me. So plenty of other people who couldn't act have tried Jeff. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Number five, uh, if you could work with one person living or dead, who would it be? That's really hard. Sorry. Wow, that's a good one. You know what? I'd like to. I'd like to meet Charlie Chaplin. Mm, can't remember. I'm pulling this from you. You worked on a Chaplin film. I did. I was a camera assistant on the uh, the Richard Attenborough one with Robert Downey Jr. That's the one. I thought my revision had gone well. <laughs> yeah, good memory. Um, number six. What is a book that everyone should read? What is a book that everyone should read? Blink of an Eye. Ah, I've got that. I've just read that one. Walter Murch. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's fantastic. It's a great, uh, it's a great theory on editing. You know, he did a, he did a, he cut K nineteen that I sh photographed, so we became buddies. Oh wow! Because funny enough, when you mentioned earlier saying think of the audience, I thought of that. That's one of the things he says when you're editing. Of course. And the final one is if you won an Oscar, which you will definitely one day, I'm sure. Who would you thank? I would thank my dad. I would thank Fincher, and I would thank my family. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Jeff Cronenworth, the master. Thank you so much. Oh, uh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Red Carpet Rookies. To help us grow, please do subscribe and drop us a rating on the Apple Podcast Store or online if you're an Android user. To keep up to date with new episodes, blog posts and more, please do head to redcarpetrookies.com and sign up for our newsletter or follow us on Instagram at redcarpetrookies. Have a great day and we'll see you next time.